Hello, murder mystery and paranormal fans, and welcome to episode two of J.L. Delosier's The Photo Thief. I'm Jess, and this is Cam Cat Unwrapped. Previously on The Photo Thief. Detective Brennan meets the elderly and enigmatic Leland Dolan and his great-granddaughter, the seizure-ridden Cassie, who claims her mother was murdered by her father in their Philadelphia mansion. Brennan searches the three-story mansion for clues. Is he ready for what he might find? Are you? Chapter 8. To avoid pushing through the crowd, they exited the library through a barely visible pocket door to the right, its burled wood seamlessly matched to the room's mahogany paneling. Cassie beckoned him to follow. She slid the pocket door shut on its silent hinges, and the library's heady mix of body heat, mindless chatter, and expensive perfume instantly vanished. The dark mahogany disappeared behind a wall of icy blue damask, as lustrous as fine silk. Brennan stepped into a formal living room or sitting room, as the hoity-toity types used to call it. Maybe they still did. Hell if he knew. But based on the pristine condition of the oriental rug underfoot and the unblemished velvet sofa, no one sat in here ever. The room was frigid in more ways than one. The sweat dampening Brennan's neck turned chilly, and he swiped a palm across his nape, leaving a trail of goosebumps. He faced a gilded cage. The elevator. Cassie stopped in front of the iron bars. I told you she'd be here. Who? She'll be there. The text. Brennan peered through the elevator's ornate door. The lift was empty. Amber, my father's girlfriend. I don't think he invited her, though. He's a dick, but he's not stupid. I predicted she'd show up on her own. Has to stake her claim, you know. I thought the two of you should meet. Don't worry, she and your father are the last two people on my list to interview. They haven't returned my calls or I would have done so already. Brennan shivered. Nice room. Would be nicer if it had heat. The radiators are turned off. Most of this house is for show. We don't bother heating the rooms we don't use. She looked around, her gaze settling on the rose marble mantel as if seeing it for the first time. It is nice, in a Bronte sort of way. I'll have to take your word for it. I told you my mother had a degree in English literature. She loved books and added hundreds to my pap's collection. Since I barely leave the house, I've read every book in her library, some of them twice, Withering Heights included. She pushed the up button and the elevator door rattled open. A barless prison is the cruelest kind, my pap always says. Her cheek dimpled. But I think he's referring to a different kind of bar. He pictured the times he'd seen Cassie, the local library. She always had a stack of vintage newspapers and magazines in her hands, but never a book. If this is a prison, it's a damned swanky one. Besides, I've seen you at the public library, which happens to have hundreds of books, by the way. They even have ones on subjects other than murder and mayhem. What fun is that? A faint smile flitted across her face. I'll have you know my favorite book of all time is a good old-fashioned ghost story. Sort of. The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Ever heard of her? Should I have? Yes. Cassie stepped inside the elevator. We don't typically have guests, and I don't usually give tours. What would you like to see first? How about we start with your mother's bedroom or her bathroom, wherever she kept her pills? She frowned. What pills? 
She didn't take any medications? Not that I know of. A vitamin, maybe. She was a health nut. Vegan, exercised two hours a day. We ate nothing but organic, especially after my seizures started. As if kale could cure epilepsy. The seizures annoyed my father, but my mom, they horrified her. She raised the pitch of her voice, presumably to match her mother's. They're just so ugly. She jabbed the button for the second floor. Brennan hurried to join her. The iron bars shut with an ominous clank and the cage convulsed into upward motion. I got the impression you loved your mother. I did love my mother and she loved me, but appearances were very important to her. When I was young and perfect, she paraded me in front of her society friends like a prized bichon. That changed six years ago. Since then, I've been hidden from view, a shut-in. The elevator stopped with a sudden jolt. I can't blame her. My seizures are terrifying. Every household has a skeleton in the closet or a monster under the bed. I guess I'm the Dolan family monster. Pap is the only one who disagrees. The doors parted. Cassie's ballet flats whispered across the hallway's padded carpet. She stopped at the staircase's second-story landing and rested her hand on the thick banister. My parents' bedroom is at the end. She nervously glanced up and down the steep staircase. I'll stand guard. Brennan hesitated. Without a warrant, any evidence he collected might be inadmissible in court, even with old man Dolan's permission. And if anything went missing, like a medicine bottle or a piece of Aaron McConnell's undoubtedly expensive jewelry, Ryan could accuse Brennan of theft. Cassie prodded him with her voice. You won't get another chance, you know. My father will never permit a search, and my Uncle Beck owns enough judges to block a warrant. She was right. No one in Philly bribed more local judges than the Irish mob, except maybe the Italian mob, and the McConnell clan had deep pockets. Brennan glanced over his shoulder and covered the distance to Ryan's bedroom in a few long strides. He left the door wide open in case Cassie opted to monitor his search from afar. But head tilted high, her gaze remained fixed on the stairs. Brennan snapped on a pair of gloves from his coat pocket and focused on a quick search of the closet, bathroom, and bedside tables. Rows of designer suits and Italian leather shoes, a single pair of which would have demolished Brennan's budget for a month, filled Ryan's closet. Nestled in a back corner, a black and neon yellow case leaned against the wall. He knelt to examine the label, which featured a heart pierced by a bolt of jagged lightning. AED, property of Jefferson Hospital. Ryan had his own personal defibrillator. Not surprising, given Dolan's age and poor health and Cassie's epilepsy. The question was whether Ryan swiped it from the hospital. Brandon took a picture and moved on to the bathroom. The medicine cabinet held an assortment of supplements whose labels flaunted exotic names and promised everything from a clean liver to strong nails. The only prescription bottle he found belonged to Ryan. Viagra. He chuckled, then grimaced. The resulting mental image was one he could have done without. The childproof cap popped off with an easy twist. He examined the dozen or so pills in the vial. The tablets all appeared to have the same oval shape and robin's egg blue color. His older colleagues often joked about the little blue pill, so he was fairly certain these were indeed Viagra. As for the herbal and vitamin bottles, he was well aware from prior investigations that their labels might not match the actual contents. He carefully positioned the bottles back in their exact spots, unwilling to remove them for further analysis. Ryan would surely notice their absence, especially if his social calendar included a hot date with Amber. After ensuring he'd left the room as he had found it, he closed the door with a firm click and rejoined Cassie by the stairs. 
She stood ramrod straight, staring at the empty third-story landing. Did you find anything interesting? Not a darn thing. He made a big show of turning his pockets inside out to prove he hadn't copped anything. That wasn't necessary. Maybe not for you, but it was for me. Now where? Depends. Cassie's eyes narrowed. Why did you ask about medications? Something showed up on Mom's autopsy, didn't it? A dawning realization hardened her already somber expression. She did a 180 and rushed to yank open a door at the opposite end of the hall. Search my bedroom. My pills are on the bathroom vanity. Take pictures of them if you want, but leave the bottles. I can't go without my meds. She stepped aside so Brennan could enter, but lingered in the doorway. Uncomfortably aware of how dicey the situation would appear, if anyone saw them together in her bedroom, he shooed her into the hall. I don't need to confiscate your pills. From a legal standpoint, I can't without a warrant. From a personal gain standpoint, I'd have to be a pretty poor excuse for a human being to steal medications from an epileptic patient. Besides, I doubt there's a black market for stolen seizure drugs. There's a black market for everything, detective. You know that better than I. In the wrong hands, my meds could be used for bad things. My mom... Cassie, her expression distraught, pressed her hand over her mouth. If they were, it's through no fault of your own, and we have zero proof of anything yet. My investigation is just getting started thanks to your father's lack of cooperation. Speaking of which... Brennan raised his right hand in the air. I, Detective Dan Brennan, do solemnly swear not to touch a single pill if you promise to guard the stairs again. The tension in her face relaxed slightly. She nodded and returned to her post by the banister. Brennan felt her gaze on his back, watching him as he methodically studied her sanctuary. A scruffy, button-eared teddy bear, more vintage treasure than toy, sat on a high shelf. It was the room's only embellishment. No boy band posters on the sage green walls, no fuzzy stuffed creatures on the neatly made bed, not a hint of anything neon or goth or sparkly anywhere. He'd seen frillier cells in the state penitentiary. Not that he was surprised. The teens studied cold cases for fun. As promised, a trio of amber-colored pill bottles lined the bathroom vanity. He inspected the labels and snapped photos of each. Kepra, lorazepam, primidone. The medical examiner's text had indicated benzos and barbs. Brandon was no pharmacist, but he knew enough to suspect these were the same medications in Aaron McConnell's bloodstream. He'd confirm it with Pete when he returned to the office. He held one of the bottles to the light. Fingerprints would be nice. He debated asking Cassie to dump her pills into other containers so he could confiscate the bottles, but ultimately decided against it. Ryan's or Aaron's prints could easily be explained away and prove nothing. If he ended up needing prints, it'd be better to wait for a warrant. The rest of the room was bland, all curved edges and unbreakable objects. With a platform bed so close to the ground, Brennan doubted his 40-year-old knees would allow him to rise in the morning. He closed the door quietly behind him. Cassie met him at the elevator. As he approached, she searched his face with her eyes. Well? She pushed the up button. I can't form an opinion until I read the details of the tox report. We're just getting started, remember? Between your father's lack of cooperation and his, um, shall we say connections, I've had to tread lightly. Preoccupied with their thoughts, they rode the elevator in silence until the door opened with a cheery ding. The third floor greeted them with a shimmering wall of heat. Brennan loosened his tie. I know he'd rises, but this is ridiculous. Is it always like this? 
Mostly. Pap likes it warm. It's an old person thing, like their body odor. Did you know old person smell is a real thing? It's caused by a chemical called noninal that lingers on fabric, especially in enclosed spaces. I read about it in a crime report. Some clever detective with a good sense of smell used it to solve a kidnapping once. I'm pretty sure that clever detective was not me. The elevator door closed, disappearing into a camouflage of burled wood. Cassie stopped several steps short of Dolan's bedroom door. I'll wait here. He held his breath and made it quick, breezing through the closet in the bathroom where he snapped photos of the old man's bottles of medicine. One stood out, Donepazil. His pop had taken it for a year or so in a vain attempt to slow the Alzheimer's ravaging his brain. It failed. Brennan had helplessly watched his hearty and jovial dad become confused and anxious, then paranoid and hostile and finally catatonic, refusing to eat until he slipped away, a shell of his former self. Dolan seemed nothing like his pop. But then again, in the early stages, his pop had been adept at hiding it, too, until a neighbor found him wandering outside one cold, dark winter morning. He'd seen something, he said. Heard something, too. Confabulation, the doctor called it, stating hallucinations were common with Alzheimer's. In retrospect, that day marked the beginning of the end. Brennan shook his head and briefly rifled through the clutter crowding the room's only dresser. Sympathy cards, old receipts, outdated business magazines. At the bottom of the pile, a purple heart rested in its clear acrylic coffin. Brennan wiped the dust from its spiderwebbed surface with his sleeve. It looked as if someone had stomped it with their heel. A source of bad memories, he imagined, but one too precious to toss in the trash. He understood perfectly. A rattling noise akin to the jingle of vintage keys on a heavy brass ring interrupted his thoughts. He buried the purple heart back in the mound of debris. As he closed the door to Dolan's bedroom, his peripheral vision caught a metallic glint from Cassie's right hand. His stomach tightened, a reaction inappropriate to the situation, at least he hoped, but involuntary nonetheless. He kept his voice light. What have you got there? He nodded at the clenched fist tucked close to her right hip. Her fingers slowly unfurled, revealing an ornate brass key tarnished with age, but with enough residual sheen to glimmer in the overhead light. It rested in her palm like a dragonfly preparing for flight. You have one more room to see. She pointed down the hallway to her left, where the threadbare carpet ended in front of a heavy wooden door. A Victorian padlock, its yellow brass hidden under a thick layer of green patina, dangled from a latch on the door. Do you always carry that key around with you? Brandon asked, eyeing the pockets of her black dress. Yes. He took quick stock of his position. This had to be the room with the mysteriously dark window, the one he'd noticed from outside. Curiosity peaked, he followed her down the hall. The air grew blissfully cooler as they drew near. Based on the chilly living room, he assumed Dolan was frugal. Most people who grew up in the Depression were. He couldn't blame the old man for not heating an unused room on the third floor, one that was kept closed off from the rest of the house. Closed off to everyone, it seemed, except Cassie. She inserted the key and removed the hefty padlock with both hands. Would you mind getting the door? Brennan turned the knob and pushed. The door resisted. He pushed harder. It swung open in a fury so fast that he held his breath, certain the brass knob would punch a hole into the wall behind. It stopped just short and he exhaled. A rush of cold air chilled the sweat beating his upper lip. 
Fractured beams from distant headlights penetrated the lead glass windows and sent menacing shadows convulsing around the room. As his pupils adjusted to the dark, the shadows coalesced, revealing themselves to be nothing more than sheet-covered furniture. Chairs positioned in front of a fireplace dirty with ashes, a hulking white behemoth in the shape of a baby grand, another in the shape of a harp. A music room? Brandon ran his hand along the papered wall inside the door. The padlock rattled in Casey's hand. Maybe once upon a time, now it's a photo room. Not sure I know what that means. Brandon stepped aside. Since I got the door, maybe you can go first and get the light for me. I can't seem to find the switch. Of course. Cassie crossed the threshold, flicked the light switch with her elbow, and painstakingly deposited the padlock on the parquet floor several feet from the door. He shot her a quizzical look. She brushed her hands on her skirt. I got locked in here once. I'm more careful now. Must have been terrifying, especially if you were still a kid. You have no idea. He followed her into the center of the room. Actually, I do. When Elle was two, she managed to lock herself in our bathroom while Julia, my ex-wife, went to answer the phone. I was downstairs when Julia started screaming. All I could imagine was Elle getting a hold of my razor or drowning in the bathtub or drinking the drain cleaner from the vanity cabinet. His fingers crumpled a handful of the dusty white sheet covering a wingback chair. I had to break down the door to get to her. I found her sitting happy as a clam on the bath mat with toothpaste smeared everywhere. Cassie smiled. Sounds like it was more frightening for you than it was for her. Without a doubt. He relaxed his grip on the sheet. I'm sure your parents were equally terrified until they discovered where you were hiding. My pap found me. Her smile faded. It was six years ago, and I just had my first seizure. I wasn't supposed to be in here. I knew that. But he'd left the door unlocked, and the temptation... Her voice quavered. She paused, clasping her hands tightly at her waist, as prim and world-weary as a woman six times her age. He suffered a stroke a few hours later, and don't bother telling me it wasn't my fault. Things would be much different had I never succumbed. Cassie or Pap's in his 90s. Strokes happen. It doesn't take much stress to push someone that age over the edge. Brandon glanced around the sparsely decorated room. I can't imagine there's anything in here relevant to your mother's death. Let's go. Turn around. He turned away from the chair and fireplace ahead, away from the piano and harp lining the east wall, until he faced the door through which he'd come. The ten-foot-high wall was covered floor to ceiling in dozens, maybe hundreds of black-and-white photos. He blinked and stepped closer to the odd collection. Technically, the wall was covered in paper, its embossed ivory stripes tinged gray with age and soot. But vintage photos from tiny tin types of loving couples to large family portraits plastered its surface, scarred from remnants of yellow tape that had curled and yielded to age. Random gaps where photos were lacking indicated the pictures had been arranged and rearranged at the whim of an invisible hand. Cassie's, perhaps? Interesting choice of decor. I now understand why you call it the photo room. Brandon caught the young woman's enigmatic expression. A cluster of four photos achieved special prominence thanks to their eye-level dead center position on the wall. The surrounding photos kept a respectful distance, radiating outward in concentric rings. The overall effect was dizzying, a black-and-white vortex spiraling ten feet high and twice as wide in a room already governed by shadows and ash. 
He stretched out his right hand, inexplicably drawn to a portrait of a young bride standing glumly next to her equally cheerless groom. She looks unhappy. She should be. She's dead. They're all dead. Of course they're dead. Based on their clothing, I'd guess most of these were taken in the 1920s. Brennan plucked the picture from the wall and held it close to his face. It smelled faintly of vinegar and must. Thirties, actually. You were close. You sure about that? He flipped the bride's photo and examined the yellowed back. October 1936 crossed out. June 1945. No name given. Cassie nodded. I know because Pap stole them. Most are labeled with the dates the photos were taken and sometimes with the family members' names. The handwriting varies, so I suspect they were dated by their photographers. Your Pap stole these? There must be over a hundred of them. One hundred and seven, to be exact. Pap wasn't born rich, you know. A few of these photos he took himself, but most he stole for the newspapers. She lowered her gaze to the floor. When I said these people were dead, I meant they'd been murdered. I've researched them all. About a tenth of their cases remain unsolved. Brennan frowned. I remember reading how he worked as a photo thief during the Great Depression, but that was in the 30s. This photo has two dates. October 1936 is crossed out, but the second date, June 1945, would imply it was taken shortly after he returned from the war. He squinted to read the faded print. The handwriting's similar, but it's not exactly the same. Different authors, I guess. I know. My research... So far I've cracked six of the unsolved murders, but they were all from the margins. She pointed to the last of the concentric ring of pictures. The four photos in the middle remain a mystery. They are the only ones to have a second date on them. Different months in 1945. Pap was home from the war and working his way up as a news reporter by then. He married my great-grandmother in 1946. I doubt he was stealing photos at that point. I don't understand it myself. Did you ask him about it? No, I'm not supposed to be in here, remember? He wouldn't tell me anyway. I tried to bring it up once, but he cut me off and kicked me out of his room. He never talks about those days. Mom called it PTSD, but I like the old-fashioned term better. Shell-shocked. It sounds violent like it is. Less sanitized. Let me get this straight. Since he wouldn't help you, you snuck in here every day for the past six years and researched all of these yourself? He swept his arm toward the wall. For what? Giggles and grins? Yep. Well, not every day, but yes. What else have I had to do? Solve an 80-year-old cold case by reading moldy newspapers at the library, apparently. I solve six 80-year-old murders at the library. You should pay better attention. Brennan raised an eyebrow. Okay, so tell me, what happened here? He pointed to a random photo on his left. The scene depicted was a happy one, featuring a jaunty-appearing young lad wearing striped suspenders and a huge smile. His parents hovered over his shoulder. At his feet, a laughing toddler splashed her hands in a washtub. That's Gil. His dad used to beat his mom, and Gil got tired of it. At least that's what the newspaper said. He chopped him up with an axe and fed him to the family hogs. Brennan whistled. Cold. They hanged him for it. He was fourteen. Her voice shook. They used to do that back then, I guess. Nothing mysterious about that murder, huh? Except Gil didn't do it. His mom did. He took the blame for her. Can you imagine letting your son hang for you? But she had a baby to raise, and Gil loved his little sister. She lapsed into silence. Brendan studied the other photos and imagined the horrors lurking behind their glossy surfaces, a wall full of murder victims. He shook his head. 
Your pap saved their pictures for 80 years. Why? Cassie ignored his question. I was hoping you could help me solve the puzzle of the four photos with the dual dates. I watched you interact with your daughter at the library. You have patience, and you seem like a good detective. My pap thinks you're a good man, too, and he's never wrong. Prove my mother was murdered, help me investigate these four cases, and I'll turn over the six I've already solved. I'd planned to give my research to the police eventually anyway, as soon as I found someone who'd believe me. You can take the credit if you'd like. I don't care about that. Then why do it if not for some sort of recognition? You're young and rich and murder's a nasty business. Why expose yourself to the horror? It's a hell of a hobby. It's more than a hobby. Pap saved the photos for the same reason I study them. Cassie's left eyelid began to twitch, and she blinked rapidly. We're compelled. I don't expect you to understand, but you'll find my research is solid. I have a seizure disorder, but I'm not dumb and I'm not delusional. Nobody said you were. You're wrong. A faint female voice wafted from afar. Cassie? Brennan jumped. Did you hear that? The voice grew louder, more insistent. Cassie, where are you? I'm worried about you. Cassie's lips curled into a cool smile. Amber, my ex-tutor. She's probably hoping I'm up here dying of a seizure. One less obstacle between her and my family's fortune. We need to go. She slid the wedding photo from Brennan's grip and tacked it on the center of the wall next to the others. Her slender fingers lingered over the bride's white dress. I'll be right there, she yelled down the hall. Brennan retrieved the padlock from the floor on his way out the door. He slipped it over the latch. I'll do it. Cassie brushed him aside. You take the elevator, I'll take the stairs. She clicked the lock into place and gave it a firm tug. They walked the hall together until they reached the staircase. She paused. Do you believe me? That Amber's a conniving gold digger? About the cold cases, that I solve them? I believe it's possible you solve them. You're observant, dedicated, and smart. But I'll withhold final judgment until I review your research. Cassie's eyes misted with tears. She nodded and gripped the sturdy wooden handrail, its once glossy finish dull and patchy from a hundred years of use. The woman in the picture? Her voice was thick and she paused to swallow. The unhappy bride? Yes, her name is Ruth. Chapter 9 November 6th Third Journal Entry Cyanide tastes like marzipan if you close your eyes. That's the second thing Ruth said to me when I dared to return to the photo room. Over a month had passed in a blur of doctor's appointments and hospital stays for my newly diagnosed seizure disorder. Even as a heavily medicated 12-year-old, I somehow knew my seizures were never going to respond to standard medical treatments. Instead, there was something I was meant to do, something that could only be found in that room. I gaped at Ruth's picture on the wall, certain the voice had come from the image of the gloomy bride, but not understanding how. She mistook my confusion for ignorance. You've never heard of marzipan? It's an almond-flavored confection. A coveted delicacy until the war made anything Eastern European seem unpatriotic. Apparently, it's fallen out of vogue. As has cyanide. Or so I've heard. The room started to change in ways I can barely describe. 
zooming in and out like a camera struggling to focus its lens. The air turned cold enough for me to see my breath, and I debated turning tail to run, but my feet were glued to the floor. Ruth, in muddied black and white like her photo on the wall, stood an arm's length from my face. She smiled and cocked her head, apparently delighted to have an audience. Cyanide wasn't so hard to obtain back in my day. Any tradesman could get a license for it. My first husband was a jeweler. He thought I was too dumb to understand what the vials in his workshop contained or what they could do. I opened them one by one until I smelled almonds. That's how I knew I had the right one. Then, all I had to do was wait for the right moment. One night, he returned from the bar so liquored up he could barely stand. But as any drunk will tell you, there's always room for one more. One corner of Ruth's painted lips twitched, and the windows frosted with the ice. I told the police I'd awakened in the middle of the night to hear him seizing. There'd been a rash of alcohol poisonings from bootleg liquor over the prior month. And since half the town had seen him stumble from the bar, no one questioned a thing. I think they were just happy to be rid of him. He treated everyone except his customers like ignorant mules. But he treated me the worst, especially after I... We lost the baby. Ruth's expression once again grew glum. The room darkened with her mood. I hid the cyanide for future use. It came in handy with my second husband. By then, I'd burned through the money I'd earned by killing husband number one. But using the poisoned drink trick again seemed boring. I had a hankering for something more creative. So I whipped up a batch of cyanide-laced marzipan. It was really good, too. I taste-tested it, before adding the cyanide, of course. She chattered on describing in detail how she'd managed to kill off two more husbands over the course of the next few years. You must think I'm a terrible person, but I'm not. I was literally starving when I married my first. My father and brothers, I was nothing more than their slave, their cook, their washerwoman. Abusive bastards, the whole lot of them. They were the terrible ones, not me. Besides, I know someone far worse. She paused, awaiting my response, but I had no idea what to say. I'm sorry, I blurted, not sure what or who I was apologizing for. My feeble attempt at sympathy seemed to satisfy her. A sad smile clouded her face strengthening her resemblance to the desolate bride in the photo from so long ago. She turned toward the photo wall. I was hunted by a mass murderer, 
Sorry, serial killer once too. Isn't that what you call them these days? She touched three seemingly random photos on the wall. They glowed with an unknown force that dissipated in seconds, leaving their edges to glisten with a fine layer of frost. So were they. I can hear them, I said as if confessing a sin. I know, they can be a rowdy lot, always clamoring for attention. I can teach you how to control them if you like. She stroked a finger across her own photo, pausing over her husband's face. It disappeared in a mound of frost. I know who murdered everyone on this wall, except for these three, and myself, of course. None of us can see our own killer's face. A quirk of the afterlife, I guess. Maybe the four of you were killed by the same person. Perhaps. A serial killer, as I said. Ruth smiled. You're a smart one aren't you, Cassandra? Cassie. Emboldened, I rose to my tiptoes and pulled the nearest photo from the wall. A burly, middle-aged man stared at me with piercing, cold eyes. His voice, deep and menacing, whispered in the back of my brain. It grew louder, closer, angrier. Panicked, I flipped the photo over, severing the connection. I drew a shaky breath. September 1936, crossed out. July 1945. Why are there two dates? You'll figure it out. Ruth's icy breath whispered in my ear. That's Paul. Don't tell him I said so, but he was an evil man. Nasty. Someone shot him in the face. Whoever it was deserves a big, fat kiss. She giggled, and the room grew warmer. I taped the photo back in place and reached for another, but Ruth stopped me with an impatient wave of her hand. Enough murder and madness for one day. Let's get to know each other. She drifted to the piano and patted the bench, indicating I was to sit beside her. Do you know Claire de Lune? Astonished to learn I hadn't been taught to play. Apparently, classical mythology and piano were essential education for proper young ladies of the era. She proceeded to teach me. On more than one occasion, Pap, alerted by the faint music drifting down the hall, chased me from the room. He always locked the door behind him. With Ruth's assistance, I always managed to return. She entertained me with vibrant tales of life in the early 1920s, before a second world war and a great depression tarnished hope for the future. She told me the stories of the three victims whose killers she could not see. Our friendship grew, 
While she distracted me from the myriad painful tests and medication side effects I endured during those early years of my seizures, when their control worsened before it got better. When I was pulled from school and lost contact with society. When my real friends drifted away. Six years later, hers is the only voice I can hear. Her presence has gotten stronger, her voice louder. She says I give her strength. I think she takes it. She's always hinted my friendship serves a greater purpose. Now that I'm older, my mission is clear. Find her killer, living or dead. And although she denies it, I can tell by the chill in the room. Her patience has waned. Chapter 10 Brennan lingered at the top of the stairs, trying to remember every instance where Cassie had mentioned a woman named Ruth. He replayed the past week in his mind. The hospital when Ryan McConnell had told her of her mother's death. Ruth will tell me the truth. But then she denied it. Ruth will, not Ruth had. Her name is, not was. There was a whole lot of weirdness going on. A thin line of sweat ran between his shoulder blades, reminding him the third floor hallway was far too warm, especially after the chill of the unheated photo room. Cassie had dashed down the steps before Brennan could formulate an intelligent question. He listened to her voice from below as she blithely lied to her ex-tutor about her reason for being on the third floor. Pap needed his inhaler. She probably managed to pull one from those bottomless pockets of hers, the pockets which also held the strangely shaped key. No picking that lock. Not that he planned to try, although he wished he would have written down the exact dates from the back of Ruth's picture. Something 1936. June or July, something something. He glanced over his shoulder at the padlocked door. Overhead, a bulb blew, popping and sputtering into a long, slow hiss. The remaining bulbs flickered. A ballet of shadows danced down the hall before dissipating under the door and through its keyhole as if sucked inside by the spiraling vortex of photos. A black hole of energy in a room in which there should be none. The padlock swayed and Brennan blinked, unwilling to trust his eyes. Maybe he was the one who was swaying. The carpet was unevenly worn and laid over floorboards, likely warped with age and settling. His stomach churned from the crooked floor plus the heat and the flickering lights, the funhouse effect he'd heard it called. He'd be wise to head downstairs where it was cooler. He'd snag one of those fancy cookies, settle his stomach, and be on his way. He had an autopsy and a talk screen to review. Good times. The elevator was waiting for him. He exited into the formal living room and slid the pocket door open just enough to slip into the library without anyone taking notice. Anyone except Leland Dolan. Cassie had returned to stand by her pap side. Their eyes followed him as he worked a path through the well-heeled crowd. He paused in the foyer to snatch a shortbread off a harried server's tray. He nodded a goodbye to Dolan. The old man nodded back. From across the room, Cassie scowled as a warm hand latched onto Brandon's elbow. Amber Cervello cocked her blonde head toward the front door. Are you leaving too, detective? I've been dying to talk to you, and it looks like I'm going to need a ride home. 
Brandon and Amber ducked out the door together. A gust of crisp autumn air ruffled his hair and provided welcome relief from the stifling intimacy of the mansion's library. Once they descended the stone steps and traveled out of earshot of the curious doorman, Brennan paused. This seems as good a place as any to have our chat. First off, how do you know who I am? Ryan told me before he kicked me out the door. He said I shouldn't have come, said I made him look bad in front of the police. She rolled her coal-lined eyes. The McConnell family's all about appearances, you know. The sad part is I was just checking on Cassie. She has seizures, and sometimes stress makes them worse. Poor kid. I'm Amber, by the way. She stuck out a perfectly manicured hand. I used to be Cassie's tutor before she graduated. I was more of a nanny, really, but Cassie didn't like that word. She's 18 going on 40, in case you hadn't noticed. I'd say she's handling the situation better than any 18-year-old I've ever met. I'll take credit for that. Brendan raised his eyebrows, but held his tongue. You said something about a ride? Yeah, if you don't mind. I took a cab here, but if you're heading toward Fishtown. He was not heading toward Fishtown. The working-class Irish Catholic neighborhood had seen a decade of rapid gentrification. It was now a mix of trendy art studios and hip bistros, making Brennan more uncomfortable there than in the drug-ridden streets of North Philly's Badlands. But Amber needed a ride, and he needed to rule out a suspect. A match made in heaven, especially if she was pissed at Ryan for kicking her out of the wake. Hell has no fury. I love Fishtown. He pointed down the street. But I'm parked hell and gone from here, at least a mile away toward the river. You up for the walk? Absolutely. She flashed a grateful smile. Her leather ankle boots had treacherously high heels, but she handled the cobblestone streets like a pro. They covered the ten blocks in no time. The passenger seat of his dinged-up Dodge was strewn with empty coffee cups, random notes, and crumpled-up napkins. Brandon tossed them in the back and brushed a fine layer of crumbs off the nylon and onto the floor. A splash of bright green caught his eye. He pulled a small picture book out from where it lay wedged next to a crayon under the seat. Good night, Moon. Damn, he missed one. Now he'd have to make another trip to the library. He gritted his teeth and threw the book in the back with a rest. Sorry about the mess, he muttered as he held the door. Ryan McConnell's car probably smelled of fine leather, not crayons. No worries, I appreciate the ride. The bus is just so... She wrinkled her upturned nose. You know, common. Brendan slammed her door and slid behind the wheel. I'm not sure that I do. He turned in his seat. Amber was anything but common. Gorgeous, in fact, but not in an old, money-refined kind of way like Aaron McConnell. This blonde definitely had dark roots and brassy undertones. Brennan would bet his badge he'd ridden the bus more than a time or two. Slow, she said with a limp swish of her hand. The bus is so slow, stops every two or three blocks, takes forever to get to Fishtown. Brennan merged into heavy traffic on I-95. Their conversation lapsed until they took the Gerard Avenue exit and the congestion thinned. You said you were dying to talk to me. Brennan drummed his fingers on the wheel as they idled at the first of many red lights. Yet you haven't returned my calls and you haven't said a single word. Turn left. There's a coffee shop on the next corner. It's a block from my apartment. You drove, I'll buy. She tugged at the hem of her black skirt, too short for a Sunday wake and an inch shy of being demure. He eased the car to the curb. She didn't wait for him to open the door. We order at the counter, she said over her shoulder. You find us a seat. What do you want? 
Coffee, black. Dark roast, you mean? The darker, the better. The cafe was exactly as Brennan expected it to be, sleek and sterile with a too-cool-for-school vibe that made him feel like a curmudgeonly frump, which maybe he was. He puffed out his chest and claimed the only empty table. The orange plastic disc with aluminum legs wobbled as he approached, implying a good hard sneeze could do it in. And made from recycled water bottles, a sticker proudly proclaimed. He doubted it. The hunk of junk was probably slapped together on an assembly line in China, with toxic glue. Amber returned with two artisan painted mugs and set his on the table. He held his breath as the steaming liquid sloshed back and forth on the unsteady surface. Odd coffee was a terrible thing to waste, especially a brew this expensive. She cradled her mug and gingerly sipped a frothy mixture of foam and pink turbinado sugar from its porcelain edge. I guess you're wondering what I have to say. You guessed right. Another sip, another silence. I can also guess what Cassie's told you about me, all the nasty things she's implied. I want you to know they're not true. You're not having an affair with her father? Okay, that part is true, Amber conceded with a half-smile. For how long? Two years, although it's not really an affair anymore, is it? He held up his hand. This is the part where I advise you to consider withholding further comment before consulting a lawyer. Why, I wasn't there when Aaron fell down the steps. I have an alibi and everything. Besides, I haven't set foot inside Dolan Mansion for months until today. Not since Cassie turned 18 and decided she didn't need me anymore, which I think she's regretting, by the way. I think not. Brennan hid his grin with a swig from the mug. Amber set her cappuccino on the table. A splash of muddied foam trickled down the mug's glossy surface. Look, detective, I care about Cassie. I truly do. When Ryan hired me, she was lonely and fragile, both mentally and physically. I protected her, and although you may find this hard to believe, she used to like me too. Then she changed. How so? She stopped caring about her lessons. She became withdrawn and often was downright hostile, which she blamed on her meds. I'd find her whispering to herself, full-on conversations she'd never share. She lied to me more than once and would disappear for hours on the third floor where I was forbidden to go. By the time I left, she was spending most of her time up there with her pap. You know what I think? Tell me. Old man Dolan poisoned her mind. He's crazy or senile or both. I used to catch him staring at us from the doorway during her lessons, just standing there leaning on his walker watching me. She shuddered. He's out of his mind. If anyone killed Aaron, it was him. That's what I wanted to tell you. I watched over that child. Now she has no one. She's alone in that house with him. She has her father. Amber laughed. Ryan's not exactly the paternal type. Brennan leaned back in his chair and chose his words carefully. I can think of no logical reason why Leland Dolan would kill his only granddaughter. Crazy doesn't need a reason. Crazy is as crazy does. Surely you've seen that before. Their table rocked, clipped by a dude sporting a man bun and a crossbody messenger bag. Amber jumped to her feet, narrowly avoiding a lapful of coffee. Moron. She righted her tipped cup and dabbed ineffectually at the pool of liquid flooding the orange table. Brennan threw a wad of napkins over the mess and wiped it clean. I think we're done here. He guided her out the door to the relative quiet of the pedestrian street. Four o'clock and the sun had already begun to set. He hated fall. As if on cue, a gust of cold wind sent litter and leaves alike skittering down the street. 
He assessed her thin leather coat and offered her his more substantial one. She refused with a dismissive wave of her hand. I'm only a block away. I'll walk you to the corner. He eyed a young man leaning against the brick wall of the bank across the street. A lookout for sure, probably for the local drug lord. But Fishtown was also home to Philly's Irish mob, with whom Ryan McConnell was intimately connected, which led Brennan to his next question. You surprised me, Ms. Cervello. He casually kicked a pebble down the pockmarked sidewalk. All this talk about Leland Dolan when I thought you wanted to chat about Ryan and his family instead. Did you ever meet his big brother, Beck? Amber's eyes narrowed. Once or twice, I'm smart enough not to talk about him in public. But I will say this, Ryan is handsome, charming, and quick to spend his money. Generous. He's also spineless and surprisingly tender. Too soft to work in the family business and too soft to have killed his wife. His brother bullied him terribly. Still does. Pillow talk? Something like that. You have an interesting way of defending your boyfriend, Ms. Cervello. Call me Amber. Amber, then. Ryan can't be that much of a wimp. He got through medical school and a surgeon's internship. I hear there are no walk in the park. I'm guessing his family bought his admission, but that didn't guarantee he'd graduate. It certainly didn't guarantee his success. Why do you think he married Aaron? He needed a secure income to maintain the lifestyle to which he was accustomed. One little brotherly spent and there goes his financial support. Nobody likes a mooch, least of all Beck McConnell. She rounded the corner and stopped to pull a keychain from her designer leather purse. And that's all I'm going to say about the McConnell boys. Thanks for the lift. Thanks for the coffee. Brennan handed her his card. In case you think of something else I should know. Oh, and one more thing, Ms. Cervello. Amber. Amber? He smiled. I'm going to need that alibi. Chapter 11 Beer bottle in hand, Brennan sat in the living room of his gloomy apartment and watched the flyers skate a hockey puck up and down the ice. On nights like tonight when preoccupied with a case, he often muted the sound and listened to his thoughts instead. His brain and his gut instincts competed for attention. Typically, his gut spoke louder. His buddy Pete, the medical examiner, had texted him an hour ago. They scheduled a meeting for early tomorrow morning to discuss Aaron McConnell's autopsy and talk screen. Until then, he was in a holding pattern with murderous accusations flying faster than a 90-mile-an-hour slap shot, but no hard data to prove that Aaron's death was anything more than an unfortunate accident. He disabled the mute, determined to drown out the Dolan family drama with the crunch of bone-jarring body checks and the mindless chatter of the color commentator. Ten minutes into the second period, his phone signaled a text. Meet me at the library tomorrow at two. I have something to show you. Score. The Flyers buried the tying goal while he was staring at his phone. He cursed and slammed his beer onto the coffee table. Hoping for a replay, he tapped out a response in between glances at the TV. What is it? You'll see. Brandon sighed. Cassie, isolated in Dolan Mansion with Juster Pap and her asshole father, needed someone to talk to. That much was clear. And admittedly, her fascination with the stolen photos and the grisly unsolved murders behind them intrigued him. But he had an active case on his hands and a career to salvage. Be a good steward of your energy, the police department's counselor advised during one of his strongly suggested sessions with the employee assistance program. Those paternal pangs he felt every time he looked at Cassie's sad face, 
The counselor would call them transference, another useless nugget of psychological information he'd learned and could have lived without. Not one word lessened his grief. After completing the free sessions, Brennan had declined to schedule any more, daring his boss to mandate him. She didn't. Now it was up to him to prove he was 100% back on his game. He liked Cassie, but he couldn't bleed for her, couldn't afford those pangs. His fingers hovered over his phone screen. He still had Elle's library book languishing in the backseat of his car. He could kill two birds with one stone and never have to set foot in that library again. Be proactive. His counselor would be pleased. Okay, see you then. A rustling from down the hall caught his attention and he quickly muted the TV. The rustling became tapping, random at first, then rhythmic, designed, it seemed, to compel him to investigate. He strained to identify its source. Elle's bedroom. He flinched. Not Elle's room. It was the guest room now, another of the counselor's suggestions for moving on. The bedroom door was open the way Elle always liked it. Brandon grabbed his gun and crept the length of the narrow hall. In one practiced move, he rounded the door jam, flicked the light switch, and aimed his gun at the noise's origin. Silhouetted in the cool, pale glow of the crescent moon, a solitary crow rested on the ledge outside Elle's window. Hey, buddy, long time no see. Brennan lowered his gun and opened the window until only a thin screen separated him and the bird, its feathers as glossy and black as Elle's hair. The bird held his position with nary a flinch. You want some bread? The crow caught a throaty yes. Of course you do, you little mooch. I'll be right back. He retrieved a slice of stale bread from the kitchen and ripped it into chunks. The bird bobbed its ebony head in anticipation as Brennan raised the screen a few inches and scattered the bread onto the ledge. The crow dropped a shiny object from its beak before pecking at its dinner. It finished its meal in minutes and stared at Brennan as if waiting his next move. When Brennan didn't stir, the bird nudged the token under the screen with its beak, blinked its beady brown eyes, and flew away. A gust of cold wind fluttered the gauzy curtains. He plucked the object off the ledge and closed the window. Somehow, most likely via a constant stream of bread and crackers, his toddler had made friends with a crow. One summer, curious about the animated babble coming from her room in the wee hours of the morning, he'd walked in to hear them talking through the screen. Julia, his ex-wife, had freaked out when he told her about the sweet and magical friendship. She forbade Elle from interacting with those dirty birds, so the crow's frequent visits became a father-daughter secret. The visit stopped the day Elle died, as if somehow the crow knew. Brennan liked to think the bird had flown away with her, accompanied her on her journey. Apparently not. Brennan moved to toss the crow's gift in the trash, but paused, too curious to chuck it without taking a peek. Elle had amassed quite a collection of whatever the crow managed to scavenge, from bottle caps to bus tokens, and saved them in the ballerina jewelry box on her dresser. He opened his palm. Tonight's gift, a two-inch round disc of aluminum, appeared to be a button or a pin. He flipped it over and froze. His daughter's face smiled back at him. His abs tensed as if he'd been gut-punched. He clenched the pin in his fist and rushed from Elle's bedroom, the guest room, goddammit, it, into his own room. The same picture, embraced in a heart-shaped frame, rested on the bedside table. It was his favorite photo of many. With her chubby hands clutching a book and clad in her polka-dot best, Elle sat earnestly reading to the elf at the library. 
He and Julia made pins with the photo and distributed them to family, friends, and the staff at the oncology ward to wear as a show of support for Elle. Everybody loved them, even her crow. Brennan slammed the pin down next to the picture frame, rattling it and the pile of loose change scattered across the wooden table's surface. He paced the suddenly claustrophobic room and tried to remember his counselor's advice for when he was triggered. Slow, deep breaths. Yes, that's good. Get another beer. No, not good, but who the hell cares? He shut Elle's door with a determined click, stalked to the kitchen and grabbed a cold one. He'd catch the last period of the game and hopefully fall asleep in front of the TV. If not, there was always room for one more beer. Chapter 12 Brennan arrived at the morgue carrying an extra cup of black coffee and a half dozen jelly-filled donuts. Not exactly the breakfast of champions, but he and Pete had been friends since Pete was just the assistant medical examiner and Brennan merely a patrol officer. He knew there was nothing Pete loved more than jelly-filled donuts, not even his wife. A sullen assistant released the lock and buzzed him in. Juggling the box and two cups, Brennan hurried through the automatic door and immediately regretted not zipping his coat beforehand. Cooled to a constant 45 degrees, the frigid air triggered immediate goosebumps. But the temperature was only one part of the morgue's chill-inducing effect. The gymnasium-sized room lacked windows, and the overhead fluorescent bulbs flickered a stark blue light. White tiles lined the walls and floor. Hulking stainless steel refrigeration units dominated the center of the room, which for the moment thankfully smelled of antiseptic. A dozen rolling metal gurneys sat empty. Brennan exhaled and loosened his death grip on the donut box. He timed his visit right. Business was slow. In the far corner, transparent acrylic panels defined a rectangular space Pete called his office. Brennan tapped awkwardly on the glass with his elbow. Pete looked up from his cluttered desk. Let me help you with that. He grabbed a cup and the box of donuts and sniffed appreciatively. Mmm, raspberry jelly, my favorite. You can smell that through the box? My nose is a finely tuned instrument. I missed my calling. I should have been a sommelier or perfumer. Instead, you dissect cadavers. Not a good combination. Brandon raised his cup in a mock salute. Cheers. I can turn it off if I want to. It's called mouth breathing. Pete crammed most of a donut in his mouth. Besides, that's one of the reasons we wear face shields and surgical masks. He slurped unsuccessfully at a giant blob of jelly, which dripped from his bottom lip onto the papers scattered across his desk. Brennan grinned. You're a mess, you know that? But I'm a talented mess. Pete wiped his mouth on a paper towel and dabbed ineffectually at his red-stained papers. Which brings me to your case. Aaron Irene Dolan McConnell, age 44. He tapped his computer keyboard and her naked body appeared on the screen. Brennan shifted his feet and looked away. Pete washed down another donut with a giant swig of coffee. First, the easy part. I asked for a stat prelim report on the talk screen, essentially looking for illegal or unusual substances. It came up empty for anything strange, but did show significant levels of two compounds, barbiturates and benzodiazepines, both widely available by prescription. 
It'll take weeks for the complete report to come back, but it looks like the benzo was tentatively ID'd as the sedative lorazepam, known on the streets as a downer. I'll bet you another dozen donuts the barbiturate is phenobarbital. What makes you say that? Educated guess. Then I decline your wager. Donuts are far too precious to waste. Pete zoomed the screen's image to focus on Aaron's upper torso. Now for the hard part. The cause of death was obvious. Blunt force trauma to the back of her head from a fall, possibly due to excessive sedation from benzodiazepines. That's what I said in my report, but there's an anomaly. Pete fiddled with the settings, slowly upping the contrast until two rosy blotches appeared on Aaron's chest. Burns. They're a little blurry, but perfectly symmetrical. So faint I missed them at first. Initially, I wrote them off as a superficial sunburn. It's November, Pete. I know, but there are these amazing devices called tanning beds, Dan. Perhaps you've heard of them. Or she could have jetted off to Bermuda for a long weekend. I'm sure the McConnell family can afford it. But the more I stared at them, the more they looked like handprints, which raised the possibility that the victim was pushed. He flashed a sheepish grin. You see them too, right? Yeah, I see them. But there's no bruising over the rib cage. For someone to have pushed hard enough to leave a pair of prints, there should at least be a bruise. Brennan leaned closer to the monitor. I hate to say it, but I agree with your sunburn theory. They look like first-degree burns. Because they are burns, I did a skin biopsy and examined the sample under the microscope to be sure. 100% consistent with thermal injury, not impact or pressure phenomena. And if you think that's weird, this next picture is going to blow your mind. The markings are far from superficial. Pete clicked the mouse. The next image featured an identically positioned set of marks on the victim's back. Brennan frowned. What the hell? Indeed. At first, I hypothesized the prince had nothing to do with her fall, assumed someone had been pushing her around for a while, but she had no healed bone fractures or other evidence of long-standing abuse. The burns are fresh, and make things even weirder. The next photo looked like a slice of overcooked beef. Pete smiled at his friend's perplexed expression. The muscles and other tissues under the prince show evidence of thermal damage, too. Could a defibrillator cause this? Her husband's a physician, and I found one in his closet. He wasn't home when she fell, though, and there was no defibrillator at the scene. Brennan tried to imagine elderly Leland Dolan carrying the device down the stairs in a futile attempt to resuscitate his granddaughter, then lugging it back up the stairs before the police arrived. Highly unlikely. It's a through-and-through -through injury like a gunshot wound, except instead of a bullet, the assailant used heat or electricity. To replicate those marks, someone would have had to shock her chest, then flip her over and shock her back. Even then, I'm not sure you'd get a deep enough dermal injury to match my tissue findings. It's like she was touched by the steaming hot hands of death or something. That's flat-out insane, Brennan shook his head. Maybe we're just imagining the marks or handprints. What do they call it? You know, when people see faces on Mars or Jesus on a piece of toast? Pareidolia. That might explain it, but the marks are so dainty and perfectly symmetrical. Pete shook his head. I've never seen anything like it, and I've seen some weird shit in my day. If there's a more scientific explanation, I doubt I'll find it. At this point, I'm working off of pictures and tissue samples. The family wanted her buried post-haste. The refrigeration unit's condenser fan kicked on. 
A series of loud clangs echoed around the cavernous morgue, followed by a high-pitched whine that set Brandon's teeth on edge. We could always have her exhumed, Pete winced. Exhumed is a dirty word in my business. We prefer the term disinterment. No matter what you call it, digging her up means I didn't do the job right the first time. And the law hates it, especially when dealing with a family like the McConnells. There has to be, and I quote, exigent circumstances that disinterment is within the interests of justice. You lost me at exigent. It means hot hands of death ain't gonna cut it. Usually it takes a bulldog of a defense attorney to push for a disinterment. And to have a defense attorney, you need to arrest a suspect, which last I checked, you hadn't. <laughs> no wonder Ryan McConnell wanted her buried so fast. Which reminds me, I can't believe you submitted a report without the final talk screen. Pete flinched. I know, I know. I was under direct pressure from above. I made it as basic as I could and emphasized I'd amend the report later. I had no proof this was anything but accidental, nothing to justify a refusal to release the body. Brennan succumbed to the sugary lure of a jelly donut. Is that it? Yep. Positive talk screen for prescription meds, weirdly shaped burns, that's it. The rest of the autopsy was as bland as a day-old bagel. They munched in silence. Pete polished off two donuts for every one of Brennan's until they were staring at the bottom of a jelly-stained, crumb-filled box. The medical examiner tossed the empty box into the trash and leaned against his desk. What are you going to do now? Brennan folded the screenshot of Aaron's chest and shoved it in his pocket. I still have to question Aaron's husband, who, as I mentioned, happens to be a surgeon. It'll be interesting to hear what Dr. McConnell has to say about the burns. You're going to tell him? Sure, why not? Just remember, pal, we both have reputations to uphold. Brennan grimaced. You have a reputation to uphold. Mine's pretty well shot at this point. Pete stood tall, his expression suddenly serious. Cut me a break, Dan. Everyone in this office and all the CSIs love working with you. You're as methodical and hardworking as they come. We know what you've been through lately. One solid high-profile case and your mojo will come roaring back. I have mojo? I had no idea. Knock it off. This is your case, Dan. A high-strung socialite chugs too many drugs and takes a dive down the stairs. Period. Let it go. Our bosses are happy, the rag mags are happy, and you're happy to have an easy one under your belt. On to the next. I've been telling myself the same thing. The sugar gritting Brennan's teeth tasted cloyingly sweet, but it felt like sand. He stared morosely at the bitter dregs clinging to the bottom of his empty cup and wished for one dark swallow more, a few drops to swill the sweet away. She had a daughter, Pete. Her name is Cassie, and she's anything but happy. Chapter 13 Elle's illness had taught Brennan many things, one of which was gratitude for small blessings. He was grateful the free library's usual librarian wasn't on duty when he dragged himself yet again through the revolving door to return Elle's borrowed copy of Goodnight Moon. He was grateful that at two o'clock on a dreary Monday afternoon the facility was devoid of patrons, and he was grateful to have a legitimate excuse to delay briefing his boss, who texted a demand for an update on the case. He was questioning the victim's daughter. Libraries have a distinct smell, like that of dusty parchment paper from fine old books mixed with a hint of fresh ink from the newly shelved periodicals. 
Brandon stopped inside the door and took a deep breath through his nose. The odor triggered a wave of memories. Cassie, wearing her usual studious expression, sat in her usual corner table strewn with folders and loose papers. All seemed normal and right. If El were holding his hand, he could have easily chalked up the past six months to a bad dream. She glanced up as he approached and waved him into a chair. I wasn't sure you'd show. Why wouldn't I? You're a busy detective. I'm sure you have more important people to meet with than me. I keep my appointments. A plain manila file folder sat apart from the rest, directly in front of him on the oak table. Brandon opened it and winced. I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. You have a hell of a hobby. The homicide scene depicted in the photo was graphically brutal, even in black and white. He thumbed through the remainder of the file, which contained an assortment of photographs, newspaper clippings, and other miscellaneous scraps of paper. A pale orange ticket stub from 1930 captured his interest. He gently pinched it between two fingers and read the faded text aloud. All quiet on the Western Front. Holy cow, I bet this thing is worth Boku bucks. Cassie slid the top photo out of the folder. She pointed it to its most prominent feature, a bullet-ridden young man draped across the hood of a hooking Plymouth. In the background, an old-time theater's flashy marquee advertised the iconic film. That's Henry. He was a rum runner during Prohibition. He had excellent taste in movies. How'd you get these? She shrugged. Most of it comes from public records and newspapers. Most, but not all, like this ticket stub. If it was at the crime scene, it's evidence. If it's evidence, it's part of the official police file. Cold case or not, the hard copies of those files are never released to the public. Officially, this isn't a cold case. Cassie rifled through the file until she found a mugshot of another considerably shadier-appearing young man. The police claim Henry double-crossed his supplier, who ordered him killed. The man they convicted died in prison 35 years ago. You're avoiding my question. Except Henry didn't double-cross anyone. He was actually an undercover officer who discovered the local police department was getting paid to turn a blind eye. He was killed by a member of his own team. You're still avoiding my question. Cassie shoved the folder with a quick flick of her wrist. Look, Pap donates a lot of money to the department's Widows and Orphans Fund, okay? The curious librarian looked up from her computer and Cassie lowered her voice. The point is, Henry was a good man. More like a kid from the look of that baby face. That kid had a wife and a newborn son, both of whom are probably dead now. Brandon leaned back in his chair. Is this all you wanted to show me, or is there something else? She stared at her interlaced fingers. Any updates on the investigation into my mother's death? Brandon pictured the pale red marks burned into her mother's skin. None that I care to share. Why not? Her stillness contrasted sharply with the tension in her voice. Because it wouldn't be appropriate, Brandon softened his voice. Let me finish my job. I promise I'll tell you everything once I'm done. An old-fashioned clock ticked on the wall, adding emphasis to her lengthy silence. Finally, Cassie retrieved a huge leather tote emblazoned with splashy initials from the floor. She placed it on the table between them. This was my mother's. I claimed it before my father could give it to Amber. Thanks, but I'm not really into purses. She laughed and her pensive mood vanished. I would never have guessed. 
She pulled a pair of manila folders from one of the tote's deep pockets. I told you I had solved six murders on my own, but I needed your help with four others. These are two of those four case files. She dropped the files on top of Henry's and stacked the five other folders scattered across the table. Keep them, too. I shared Henry's with you because it's a good example of my research. They all are. Read them through. I think you'll see that my methods are valid and my conclusions are sound. Then take a look at the two unsolved cases and let me know what you think. Maybe we can meet again in a few days to discuss them. Somewhere other than the library next time. The Mütter Museum, maybe? It's creepy and peculiar, and I love it. Ever been there? No. The Museum of Medical Oddities, reportedly filled with macabre artifacts such as slides of Albert Einstein's brain and formaldehyde-filled jars of diseased organs, was not at the top of his to-do list. Father took me there once before my seizures. He's a donor. Why am I not surprised? Brennan reached to open the top file, but Cassie pressed her hand over its smooth manila surface. Save it for later. I have to go. I have an appointment with my neurologist at three. She stood and slid the designer tote straps over her shoulder. Oh, I almost forget. One more thing. She rooted around the bottom of the roomy tote, eventually extracting a small, shiny object from within its depths. For the second time in less than 24 hours, his daughter's face smiled at him from the glossy surface of a round metal pin. He stared, frozen in place. Cassie thrust it into his hand. I found it on the sidewalk outside my front steps this morning. I figured you must have dropped it after the wake. Brennan, his breathing shallow, struggled to find something, anything to say. He clenched the round pin in his fist. Her voice, warm with concern, cut through his jumbled thoughts. Are you okay? Yes. He shoved the pin in his pocket. Yes. I wasn't aware I'd lost it. Thanks. You're welcome. He watched her watching him, read the confusion and curiosity on her face as she cataloged his reaction. He forced his shoulders to relax and tucked the file folders under his arm. I'll read these tonight right after I meet with a captain. His lips twitched in a wry smile. Unless she drives me to drink. Don't let her. Cassie's phone flashed. The words on the screen faded before Brennan could sneak a peek. My appointment reminder, she sighed. I've got to run. Call me when you're done with the files. If you'd like, I can introduce you to the others, too. I'll even let you read my journal. It's the most interesting of them all. With a casual wave, Cassie glided through the revolving door and hurried out of sight. The last thing in the world he wanted was to read an 18-year-old's journal. A half-dozen 80-year-old cold cases ranked a close second. He tossed the folders onto the table. He had an hour to kill before returning to the precinct. May as well get started. He slouched in the uncomfortable wooden chair. Something sharp pricked him in the thigh. He jerked and it jabbed him again. He muttered a curse, pulled the button from his pocket, latched the pin and shoved it back in place, shifting around until it no longer pressed against his thigh. He hadn't seen one in months. Now he'd been gifted two in one day. The coincidence felt uncomfortably non-coincidental. It had to be nothing more than a fluke, a freaky roll of the dice. It had to be. His hand hovered over the top file and he blinked, willing the image of his daughter's pale face to disappear so he could focus. He turned the cover and a new face, that of the sullen bride from the photo room, stared at him in splotchy black and white. The inside of the folder's manila surface contained a single oversized word, 
carefully pinned in cursive using bright red ink. Ruth. Chapter 14 Brennan closed the first of Cassie's files and whistled softly, torn between morbid admiration and disgust at what he'd read. Ruth, serial husband killer extraordinaire, was either totally insane or a class A bitch. Hell, she was probably both. Had she not herself been murdered, her body count could have easily reached double digits. He glanced at the clock on the wall and jumped to his feet. Crap, he was going to be late for his meeting. The captain would be most displeased. He hurried from the library to his car, slammed the door, and revved the engine. His phone rang, and he cursed, answering with a curt, Brennan, Dan, you're going to want to see this. Jim Benino, the CSI who'd processed Aaron's dive down the Dolan Mansion stairs, chattered breathlessly in his ear. Pictures don't do it justice. Trust me on this one. Jim, I can't. Captain Mattern is probably signing my termination papers as we speak. He merged into traffic with an angry squeal of his tires. I think the victim's related to your case. At least I hope she is. Otherwise, you're going to have to explain why she had your card in her purse. Brennan's fingers turned to ice and his breath caught in his throat. You still there? Don't have an accident or anything. As the silence lengthened, so did the worry in Jim's voice. You'd better be talking hands-free, dammit. She who, Jim? Young with curly red hair? She's young, all right, but bleach bottle blonde. Sending you a picture now. You sure you can't swing by for a look-see? I'll be here a while yet. It's worth it. I haven't seen such a beautifully staged scene in a long time. It's even prettier in black and white. Brennan glanced at the image on his screen. Jim, a forensic photographer who approached Slaughter with an artist's eye, was right. The hit was a professional one. Stark, simple, efficient. Hands tied behind the waist, a single bullet to the back of the head. The victim's hair was matted with blood, and the bullet had exited the lower half of her face, taking her jaw with it. But Brennan knew who she was without asking. Ryan McConnell was gonna need a new girlfriend. First of all, Jim, you're a morbid sick bastard. Brennan coaxed his cold fingers into relaxing their death grip on the steering wheel. Come on, join me. I can't. Fishtown's at least a half hour out of my way. The captain may excuse a few minutes, but not the hour it would take me to get there and back. I'm hauling ass as it is. How'd you know I'm in Fishtown? Educated guess. I dropped the victim off there yesterday. Amber Cervello's her name. Was she killed in her apartment? Yep. Rough estimate puts the time of death around midnight. I guess I'll just shoot you the file in an email. Jim's disappointment was palpable. I owe you one. We're going out for a cold one once this thing wraps. Sooner, I hope. Jim chuckled. I'm holding you to it. And speaking of cold ones, good luck with the captain. Better you than me, buddy. Better you than me. The precinct, every precinct, reeked of stale coffee and sweat. Brennan ignored the inquisitive glances his co-workers didn't bother to hide and wrapped his knuckles against Captain Mattern's door. No response. He turned the tarnished brass knob and stuck his head around the doorframe. His boss, pen in hand, sat frowning at a stack of brown folders piled on her desk. Without looking up, she scribbled something in the topmost folder and shoved it aside. You're late. Ten minutes. He was ten lousy minutes late. I texted you. I got caught in traffic. We can reschedule if you want. Please. Pretty please. Don't bother. 
She waved him toward a chair, removed her dollar store cheaters, and tossed them onto the cluttered desk. Have I ever told you how much I hate doing these annual employee evaluations? Only every year for the past decade or so, she snorted. It gets worse every year. Brennan waited in silence, knowing she would get to the point when she was damned well ready. Though he appreciated the captain's political pragmatism, he didn't like his boss and he didn't need to. He respected her and that was enough. Captain Shanice Mattern had broken through a glass ceiling everyone liked to pretend it didn't exist. The woman was stone-cold fierce. Ten years into their work relationship, and Brennan had yet to receive a genuine smile. As best he could tell, only her mother and the commissioner truly liked her. She tapped her pen on the desk. The McConnell case. Yes. How goes it? The body count is higher. So I've heard. Stone cold. Brennan squelched the urge to fidget under her inscrutable stare. Amber Cervello's murder may or may not be related. I plan to get the particulars from Jim Benino, the CSI, processing the scene after I finish with you. I also need to question Dr. Ryan McConnell in more detail before I finalize my report. Why? The medical examiner found high sedative levels in her bloodstream and marks on her chest, possibly consistent with trauma other than the fall. Not a lie, but not exactly the hot hands of death, either. The captain didn't need that level of detail. Not yet. Not until he could explain it. You think she was drugged and pushed? It's highly possible. The husband was having an affair, and I'm assuming with his wife gone, he stands to inherit a chunk of the Dolan family fortune. He has motive. His own daughter thinks he did it. So does Leland Dolan. The tapping grew faster. You're never going to guess who paid me a visit this morning. Brennan paused. Ryan's big brother, Beck McConnell. The captain's pen hovered mid-tap over the desk. That's a hell of a guess. She leaned back in her chair. Along with his dick of a lawyer, I assume you realize the delicacy of the situation. Maybe you should spell it out for me just in case. Her eyes narrowed. Abruptly, she stood and rounded the desk, leaning against it with her arms crossed and her back to the clear glass overlooking the busy precinct's open office. She lowered her voice. Everyone knows Beck's entire family is dirty. You're on a first-name basis. The captain's eyes glittered like polished jasper. Brennan kicked himself in the mental pants. He should not have said that. Not out loud. He was so off his game. Her voice was tight and low. Shut up and listen. You want me to spell it out for you or not? Yes, but for the record, I think it's pathetic as hell that Ryan has to send his bully of a big brother to protect him. Brennan snorted. This isn't high school. He didn't kill his wife, detective. How can you say that? You haven't gotten my report yet. Beck looked me square in the eye and essentially said if Ryan or the McConnell family wanted Aaron dead, we would have never found her. That's as true a statement as any liar can give, especially in the presence of his lawyer who probably didn't even bat an eyelash. The captain paced the small room. Here's the thing. Not one person in the McConnell family has gotten so much as a speeding ticket. No one. They keep their hands clean and let their soldiers take the fall. On paper, Beck McConnell runs a successful import-export business and is a generous donor to local causes, including the annual Mummers Parade. He told me you've been harassing his baby brother and he wants it to stop. If it doesn't, he's lodging a complaint with the commissioner and every other woo-hoo in the department with whom he seems intimately familiar. He dropped names like they all share one goddamn giant toothbrush. 
That's a bunch of bullshit and you know it. Brandon shook his head. I've crossed paths with Ryan McConnell once, no, twice. I only talked to him once and that was a week ago at the hospital the day his wife died. I saw him again yesterday at the wake, but we didn't speak. If that counts as harassment, he says you've been calling and leaving multiple messages. If he would answer his goddamn phone, I wouldn't have to. He's trying to influence the investigation. Obviously. She opened a file on her phone and held the screen in front of his face. The magnified image included only a square foot or two of a blood-stained carpet, but Brennan recognized it for what it was. A crime scene photo, probably one of Jim's. Broken fingernails added lurid dots of color to the beige carpeting. A few strands of matted blonde hair embroidered the edge of the photo's frame. In the foreground, a designer handbag rested on its side with its contents artificially spilled into an artful display. He pushed the phone away. Amber's, I presume? Another excellent guess. She was carrying your card. I know, I gave it to her yesterday after I questioned her. The captain clicked off her phone. Did she tell you she's a mob mole? Brennan blinked. No, I guess it didn't come up. A mole for who? La Familia, the Italians, and us on occasion, whoever writes the fattest check. She's been spying on the Irish competition via Ryan McConnell for years. Apparently he's not good at keeping secrets. Coxon is asleep, she raised an eyebrow. Or so I hear. Brennan massaged his forehead. But if Beck knew, why kill her now? It makes Ryan, if not the whole McConnell family, look guilty of both murders. I think that's the point. You're assuming she was killed by her own. The captain shrugged. If La Familia thinks Amber ratted to you, why not take advantage of a bad situation? Betrayal equals death. They can off a mole and implicate their enemies all in one move. Brilliant. Gotta admire the efficiency. No, I don't. Brendan slumped in his chair and pictured Amber laughing at Aaron's wake. Dolan's response had been immediate and visceral. Your theory makes sense, but don't rule out Leland Dolan. He hates Ryan, and he wasn't exactly fond of Amber either. In fact, as far-fetched as it sounds, she implicated Dolan and Aaron's murder, essentially said the old man was batshit crazy. He can certainly afford to hire someone to do his dirty work, like revenge killing his grandson-in-law's mistress. He also contributes large amounts of money to the department. You're beginning to see the extent of our dilemma. Deep pockets on both sides, desiring opposite outcomes. Your dilemma, not mine. I'm a due process and evidence kind of guy. Do I have an opinion? Yes. My gut tells me Aaron was murdered, probably by someone in the McConnell family. But we can't prosecute based on opinion. My report will hold the facts, all of them, unfiltered and unbiased. Then it's up to you and the prosecutors as to how you want to proceed. She stared him full in the face. That's not going to work out well for one of those sides, and it might not work for me. Really? How interesting. The air between them, thick with insinuation, caught in his throat. I don't work for either side, do you? Her right hand clenched into a fist. Brennan's biceps tensed as, for one wild moment, he believed she might take a swing. Thank God for glass walls. Her voice shook with barely restrained fury. You've been walking a thin line for the last six months, detective. I suggest you watch your mouth or you'll be facing early retirement. I want that report by Friday. You're a smart guy. Figure out a compromise that'll serve Lady Justice while meeting the department's needs. He bolted to his feet, causing his chair to teeter precariously. 
I guess I'm dismissed. The slamming door triggered a lull in the crowded precinct's chatter. Curious eyes followed his departure. He slowed his gait to a casual pace and unclenched his teeth. No need to add to the rumors, especially since the meeting's only tangible outcome was a titanic shift in his opinion. He no longer respected his boss. The feeling was clearly mutual. Will Brennan and Cassie help each other solve the quartet of 80-year-old cases? Does the mob have Brennan's boss in their very deep pockets? Will she force him to drop the investigation? And what the heck caused those hot hands of death? Tune in to our next episode to uncover more clues. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to The Photo Thief now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped, a serialized podcast. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books, including interviews with the authors, editors, and other industry professionals. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.